am I on? Yeah? Amazing, amazing. Well, today we are in part two, like Steve said, of You Asked For It. And a lot of the parents in the room wrote in to ask a very similar question. And they asked, how do I keep my kids passionate about Jesus? Do we have any parents in the room? Yeah? Amazing. And so parents wrote in to ask this question. Let me just preface this message by saying I'm obviously not a parent of teenagers myself, but... I do look after most of your teenagers at youth on a Friday night, and so I hope that you can be open to hearing what I have to say on this topic. In fact, I wanna to speak to you from two different perspectives. First of all, you might not know this about me, but I studied psychology at uni for four years, but more specifically, I studied developmental psychology on a social and cognitive neuroscience track, which essentially means I studied the brain and how the brain develops from infanthood to adolescence and how their brain development affects their behavior, so I'd love to speak to you from a neuroscience perspective. Right. And secondly, Frosty and I, we've been the youth pastors here at Elam for the last four years, and he's been here even longer than that. And in that time, we have literally seen hundreds of teenagers get planted in God's house and fall passionately in love with Jesus. But we've also sadly seen many teenagers walk away from God and away from church. And so I'd love to speak to you from the perspective of a youth pastor who's pretty much seen it all. And also, let me just say, this isn't just a message for parents in the room. This is a message for the entire church because I believe that we, the church, can do a much better job at championing and understanding our young people and the stage that they're at. Does that sound good? You see, when young people go through puberty, there are uh, like a number of obvious physical changes taking place in their body. And there's also a surge of hormones. And for too long, we've believed this misconception that their risky and erratic behavior as young people is attributed to their hormonal and physical changes. See, when they respond to you with those bursts of anger, when they forget about their upcoming tests, and when they make those really dumb decisions, it's not just because of hormonal and physical changes. You see, adolescence is not just marked by puberty. There are also significant changes taking place in their own brain. In fact, parts of their brain are still being developed. And throughout adolescence, especially years seven through years 10, their brains are under radical construction. So Frances E. Jensen is a professor of neurology, and she said this, the teenage brain is not just an adult brain with fewer miles on it. It's a paradoxical time of development. These are people with very sharp brains, but they're not quite sure what to do with them. So what should we know about the teenage brain? I want to highlight to you three specific areas that will help you better understand young people. So could you take your hand and just place it on your forehead? See, right behind your hand is what's known as the prefrontal cortex. And this part of your brain is amazing. It's responsible for all of your higher functions as a human being. It helps with your rational decision making, your goal setting, your prioritization, your impulse control, your risk management, and even empathy. It's absolutely incredible. Some people call it the logic center because it helps you understand the future consequences of your decision, analyze the risks involved, and then make a rational decision on what to do. And it's significantly underdeveloped in our young people. In fact, it's the last part of the brain to be fully matured. I want to show you some brain scans of a five-year-old, a preteen, a teenager, and a 20-year-old. And you can see that the blue shows fully matured. And it's significantly underdeveloped in these younger years, and it's actually maturing from the back to the front, meaning their frontal lobe, this prefrontal cortex, is actually the last to fully mature. And it doesn't fully mature until they're in their mid-20s. 
So they are innately wired for this risk and this passion, and they don't yet have the full mature mental capacity to make the most rational decisions all the time, so we can't expect them to. And I love how this youth worker and author, Mark Oosterreicher, puts it. He says, most people view teenagers as a problem to be solved rather than a wonder to behold. In fact, all the time, parents will look at their unruly kids and see them as the problem that needs to be fixed. And we get multiple calls. Frosty and I will get multiple calls of parents calling us and saying, can you just fix my son or daughter? Can you just fix them? I don't know what to do with them. But science is suggesting that we shouldn't see them as a problem to be fixed, but as, rather a wonder to behold. Actually understand where they're at in their development and understand what's going on in their brain so that you can actually shape them and guide them to making the right decisions rather than just fixing them. That's the prefrontal cortex. Now, if we could go back to that teenage brain slide, I want to highlight to you the amygdala. So the amygdala is in the center. It's quite small. You can see an arrow pointing up to it. But the amygdala tells us this. Adolescents are often responding out of emotion rather than logic, right? They're so emotional. And when you talk to them about school, so much drama, right? Because they're responding out of the emotional part of their brain. You see, when the amygdala triggers this emotional response, usually a fully matured person has the frontal lobe to balance it out. But when that frontal lobe isn't fully developed, of course their emotions are going to rule their behavior. Andrew Newberg, he's a researcher of neurology and spirituality, and he said the amygdala is the part of your brain that reacts with fear, hatred, anger, and other alarming emotions. But this also participates in the positives. The frontal lobe balances it all out. So for instance, when someone cuts you off in traffic, your amygdala says, hurt them now. But your frontal lobe says, wait just a minute, right? And so between these two, you can see that purple region on the left, that is the anterior cingulate. And it operates like a buffer between the two. And this part of the brain is actually critical for a young person to learn how to understand and rationalize their emotions as well as their faith. This part of the brain actually helps a young person understand a God who is compassionate and personal. It also helps them to be focused less on me, 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 and actually notice the needs of other people around them. The interior cingulate is super important, and I'm gonna come back to that. But not only is their brain not fully mature, it's also being overloaded with so much information, especially in today's world. And their brain is undergoing a process that's called neural pathway pruning. And what that essentially means is with everything that they've ever been taught, their brain is deciding, should I keep it? Should I chuck it out? Should I keep it? Should I check it out? This window of time is often called use it or lose it. Only the neural pathways that are regularly, regularly used will stay intact beyond this stage of development. So this, this stage of development, this window of time, their preteen and teenage years, intermediate and high school, is actually so critical because it determines what stays and what goes. So is kids' ministry important? Absolutely. It's so important that you start them young, especially because they're so receptive and open to everything that you're teaching them. Absolutely start them young. But what I'm saying is that once they get to those intermediate and those high school years, that's when it makes all of the difference because that is when doubt starts to enter their brain. And y'all, doubt is normal. It's okay that they're asking questions. They're undergoing neural pathway pruning. So like I said, with everything they've ever been taught, 
they're asking, is this legit or should I get rid of it? It's use it or lose it. So is this the time that you allow your son or daughter to go rogue and independent and decide whether or not they want to come to church? My personal opinion is no, because more than any other time in their life, this is a time when their brain is being hardwired for the rest of their lifetime. And this is the time when we as a church need to get around our young people and help them hardwire their brain for a lifetime of faith. And get this, developmental psychologist, Dr. Sharice Nixon has also discovered that humans are hardwired to connect, not just socially, but also spiritually. And Andrew Newberg, that neurology researcher, backs up the same claim, that our brains are actually hardwired for faith. Remember that interior cingulate, the part of the brain that's super cool? That buffer? They've found that you can strengthen this region of the brain through prayer and meditation. Not only that, you can strengthen it and increase it through faith-based singing. But of course, all of this needs to be daily and consistent in order for it to have a permanent effect on your brain. So this is a lot of brain talk, but what does all of this mean? It means that in order to keep our young people passionate about Jesus, they need to be consistently exercising their neural pathways that are related to faith. So that means having some positive relationships with peers that have the same faith. Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have non-Christian friends. They can and totally should. But what I am saying is those friends should not be the main influence on your child's life. They should also be planted in a faith community. That's why voltage charge and oxygen on a Friday night is absolutely critical for their development and their social skills. It's why it's important to help them develop a consistent habit of prayer, of daily prayer, and also entering into a time of faith-based singing, of worship at church. All of this is actually helping have a positive effect on their brain. So should they be allowed to choose Netflix over church, to choose homework over Jesus or that job over oxygen? Only if you want those to be the neural pathways that stay intact, because this is use it or lose it. But here's what often happens. Have you ever seen a relay race? You know, the, the race where there's four different runners and they're each running a different stage of the race. And the moment that they can start is when the baton is placed into their hand. And this exchange is super important. Because think about it, if they fumble it or if they drop it, it's gonna slow them down. But if they pass it on outside of this exchange zone, they'll actually even get disqualified and cut their race short. This exchange zone is 20 meters, and I would argue that this is one of the most critical stages in the entire race because it's in this 20-meter exchange zone that the fate of their race is determined because they'll either successfully receive the baton and continue on strong at full speed, or they could drop it and completely cut their race short. And this baton represents faith. It's everything you've ever taught them about Jesus. It's everything that you've ever taught them about God's plan for their life. It's everything that you've ever taught them about what God did in your life and in the generations that came before you. And as a parent, you are desperately hoping that this baton of faith is passed on to your child. If anything's going to be eliminated, you really don't want it to be this, right? And that 20-meter exchange zone represents their adolescence. This period of time from the preteen to the teenage years, you see you've been running the first leg of the race. You've been bringing them along to power zone. You've been teaching them all about Jesus and how much Jesus loves them. And all of that is well and good. But once they reach those intermediate years, they've got to start running themselves. But the thing is, the first runner keeps running with the second runner 
until the baton is officially passed. They're actually running next to each other in that 20 meter exchange zone. And that's the period of time of adolescence because in that zone, that's where you're gonna find out whether or not this baton of faith is actually officially passed on. So this isn't the time for you to slow down and come to a complete stop and say, well, son, do you want this baton? It's up to you, you decide. Because here's the thing, guess what? You're not the only one holding something out to them. There's so many people speaking into their lives. And in fact, faith is not the only thing their brain is wrestling with. Everything is being extended out to them. So many batons saying, keep me, I'll bring you wealth. Keep me, I'll bring you success. Keep me, I'll bring you love. And they're looking at all of this and saying, what do I keep and what do I get rid of? They're confused. Their brain is literally under construction. And so with everything, they're asking questions. And so it's okay that they're starting to ask those questions. It's okay that they're starting to doubt. But it's not okay for you to step back in this moment and slow down the faith talk. Because this is the moment when you need to lean in. You've got to lean in in these moments and decide that you are going to be completely committed to passing on this baton of faith as they journey through this exchange zone. But too often, well-meaning parents will unintentionally distract their child at a very critical moment of their development. You see, one of the hardest things about my job as a youth pastor is when I am fully committed to running next to your child. I am fully committed to running next to them in this exchange zone. We look after the intermediates and the high schoolers here, and we've got not just the two of us, but plenty of leaders, some in our second row here, that are running next to your young kids. And we're fully committed to that. And then the parent comes along and unintentionally distracts them with something else. And then the parent will complain to us, saying that their son or daughter is no longer in church, but they don't realize that they're the one that actually handed them something different in that critical moment of development. And so today, I'd love to highlight to you three of the most common reasons we see young people leaving church. And we've seen this over the last several years. And I hope that in speaking about this today, you can actually help your young people avoid making these same decisions in their life. And this first baton that distracts them is work. Work. You see, your whole life you've been telling them, love Jesus, love Jesus, love Jesus. And then they hear, get a job, get a job, get a job, make money, make money to the point where that's all they hear from you. And in fact, I know that some families need their kids to work to contribute to the finances of the home. And, and that's okay. That's, that's good. However, it becomes an issue when it starts to compromise their faith. See, here's what often happens. Young people, teenagers, they don't know how to say no to somebody offering them money. They don't. And so they're fully planted in oxygen, and they're coming along every single Friday. They're serving. They're on leadership teams. They're doing amazing. They love Jesus. And then their manager says, hey, can you work this Friday shift? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, just, just, just this once. I can do it. But see, that just this once becomes rostered on every Friday, and all of a sudden, they're completely out of church. And then they tell you, they're like, oh, Darcy, don't worry. I'm going to come on Sunday until they get that Sunday shift. And they completely walk out of church. And then parents will attempt to justify this by saying, oh, you know, they're getting to the stage where they got to make their own decisions. They're getting more independent. They're learning valuable life skills. We've heard it all. And I get that. But can I challenge you with this question found in Mark chapter 8, verse 36 that says, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul? What do you benefit if you gain the whole world, 
but you lose your own soul. You see, when you tell them to get a job, take the shift, make the money, what you're teaching them is you're prioritizing work over church. When you tell them that they should take the shift and make that extra 30 bucks on a Friday night, you're saying that's more important than being planted in a faith community, like oxygen. You've got to realize what you're teaching them is actually starting to hardwire their brain for a lifetime. And so we've got to be careful with our young people. In fact, Frosty and I have decided that our future kids will not be allowed to take a job that makes them compromise their faith. Because I would rather our child honor God than chase after wealth. The second thing we see is the baton of non-Christian relationships. And now I'm not just talking about friendships. I'm specifically talking about those non-Christian boyfriends and girlfriends. You know the ones, right? We'll be running alongside some of our strongest, most promising teenagers. And we're running next to them, and they are excelling at everything they do faster than their peers. They're being elevated into positions of leadership because of their commitment and their capability and their capacity. And we're running next to them thinking, man, they're an absolute gun. They've got this. And then in walks the boyfriend. Or the girlfriend comes on the scene and the person who so passionately loved Jesus is now completely distracted by somebody else. A person that they tell us is, oh, such a good guy or such a sweet girl. And they, they tell us this and it's a person that, that they've allowed, that parents have allowed into their life because they're afraid of what might happen if they set some stronger boundaries. They're afraid that it could actually push their teenager further away. But... You know what happens with this? This person says, I support you being at church, but they actually want nothing to do with it. And so eventually their attention is so focused on this one that they're completely out of church. And this happens in a matter of months, every single time. Sorry, I'm just going to take this earring out. And then there's this third baton. This third baton is the baton of worldly success. Worldly success. And here's what young people hear with this. They hear, you need to study. You need to be the best. You need to make us proud. You need to value your education and not waste it because we've invested so much into it. I've heard it all and I know it well because this is the baton that derailed me from my faith in high school. This is the baton that derailed me. You see, I didn't have a boyfriend to distract me. I didn't ever work a job that kept me from going to church, but what I did have was an immense amount of pressure on me to perform and succeed, and that became my priority. You see, what happened was my parents would start to allow me to stay at home and study for a test instead of going to church. And that one time started happening all the time. In fact, I can count the number of times I went to a youth group on one hand because that just wasn't my priority. Now, was I a good kid? Sure, I, I was smart, I was kind, I had good manners, I was invested into helping my community in different leadership and community service positions, but what got ingrained and hardwired into my brain was chasing after this worldly success and chasing after that success of what the world was giving me. And so by the time I left high school, faith was merely a good option. And it was so easy to walk away from it when I went to uni in Boston. But parents... Look, I know you want your kids to be smart and educated and successful, and that is all well and good. Frosty and I want that for our kids as well. But you need to know something. These two can actually coexist beautifully. 
Faith and education can actually coexist beautifully. The fact that we have a school attached to our church is proof that we value education. But let me tell you something. I'm going to be really real because my Harvard degree means nothing compared to what Jesus did on the cross for me. It's nothing. You know, what's, what's the, the condition of my mind and what's written on my resume? Nothing compared to the condition of my soul and what's written on my heart. Again, why gain the world but lose your own soul? Too often Christian parents will also punish their kids or keep their kids uh, focused on studying by making them prioritize that over oxygen. They'll, they'll keep them home and say, oh, well, two hours on a Friday night when oxygen um, is on, yeah, you need to study. You need to do your chores. You need to do these other things. And what you're actually teaching them is how you perform in school and in church, I mean, how you perform in school and at home is more important than your relationship with God. So just be careful of what you are pushing because that's actually hardwiring that young person's brain. And can I just tell you what happens at Oxygen on a Friday night? Because maybe you don't understand that everything we do is very intentional. It is. We're not just some free babysitters club. Like some people think. <clears throat> but we have a time of hangout at Oxygen to welcome in new people that have never been in a church environment before. It's a time to build those positive peer connections, but it's also a time to release some energy after kids have had a long week at school. We play games, not just for the sake of playing a game, but actually through a game, you can open up somebody's heart to receive through joy and laughter. It also creates positive memories and a positive atmosphere where teenagers actually want to invite their friends. We have worship because it doesn't matter what their school week looked like, we're gonna direct all of our praise and all of our attention towards God. We have a message where we can speak the truth and the hope of Jesus Christ into their hearts and they can start to ask those questions about identity and purpose. We have small groups where they, again, they have those positive peer connections in a smaller environment yet by, led by one of our young adult leaders who's a positive role model for them. And what happens in those groups is they can now wrestle with those concepts of God and Christianity. Everything we do at youth is intentional. Intentionally strengthening their faith, but also strengthening their brain. And when there's opportunities for service and leadership in those programs, we're actually helping prepare your kids to be a positive impact on the world wherever they go after high school. So it's incredibly important that you understand that we're trying to partner with you. We're trying to do everything possible to put this baton of faith into their hands. So when they're stressed out about school or, or anxious about an upcoming exam or just really struggling with friend groups, the best possible place for them to be is not isolated in their bedroom studying but really overthinking all of the social dynamics playing out in their phone. Yeah, right. The best possible place for them to be is planted in a faith community where everybody there is going to direct their attention towards God where there are leaders that are willing to run alongside your children in that critical exchange zone, doing everything possible to pass on this baton of faith. And so as a youth pastor, I need you parents to partner with me. And as a church, I need all of us to partner together to better understand and champion our young people in this critical exchange zone. And so I wanna leave you with three tips and the band can join me now. Three tips for all of us to help keep our young people more passionate about Jesus. And the first is this, don't flinch. Don't flinch. Seriously, when young people mess up because they will, don't act so shocked. Teenagers are emotional. Yeah. 
They are literally operating out of the emotional center of their brain. And so when you respond to them with anger or over-the-top frustration, they will probably either, one, match you with that same anger and emotion, or two, completely shut you out because they just don't know how to cope. And so you've got to be aware of how you're responding and meet them with patience and grace. See, I have two different responses when young people tell me outrageous things, and they tell me outrageous things all the time. There's my internal response that they don't see and my external response of what I actually say. See, internally, I'm probably like you parents, and I'm thinking, how the heck did this happen? Are we doing this again? Like, what were you thinking? Were you even thinking? Internally, right? But they don't see that because my external response is very calculated, knowing that how I respond, whether or not I flinch, will actually determine whether or not they open up to me. And so my external response is, oh, wow. So tell me how that happened. There's such a massive difference. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Fathers, don't exasperate your children, but raise them up with loving discipline and counsel that brings the revelation of our Lord. In a footnote, in this Passion Translation, it says, in other words, fathers should show consideration for the different levels of understanding and experience that children possess, dealing with them at their level or risk causing them loads of heartache. Second thing is create dialogue. Create dialogue. See, too often we wanna tell our sons and daughters what we want them to do and what we don't want them to do without giving them a reason as to why. In fact, we say, because I said so. Teenagers need to know why. They need to be involved in this conversational dialogue because their brain is actually going through this pruning process of trying to figure out what's the right answer. And so they need to be involved in this conversation, in this dialogue, and dialogue is not some linear exchange from you to them, but it's actually this circular exchange where you are listening to their thought process of what's going on in their world. You are respecting their voice and their dignity. You're withholding your immediate judgment and you're actually creating this space where the two of you can approach a conclusion together. Because you gotta remember their brain is still developing and they're slowly making those right connections and learning how to respond in the rational, reasonable way. So instead of getting angry that they're not there yet, create a dialogue that helps lead them there, but also empowers them to think that they got there on their own. Final thing. Final thing is model the way. Model the way. Deuteronomy 6 verses five through seven says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. You see, Frosty and I only see your kids a couple hours a week and so we can't do this on our own. And parents can't do this on their own. They say it takes a village to raise a child in church. We're the village. We're the village that needs to be completely committed to our young people in this critical exchange zone where they're literally in a window of time where they use it or lose it. We need to be completely committed to understanding them, to not flinching when they mess up, but to meeting them with patience and with grace for where they're at, to create an authentic dialogue where we actually challenge them with some thought-provoking, tough, personal questions and help guide them to the right answer, not just simply tell them the right answer. But we also, more than anything, we need to model the way. You say, how do I keep my kids passionate about Jesus? I say, it starts with you. We have to be passionate. We have to be the ones to engage during praise and worship. 
We have to be the ones to show them what it looks like to lead others and also live a godly lifestyle and pursue godly relationships. We have to show them what it looks like to serve and put others' needs above our own. We have to show them and teach them that they can actually have a really positive impact on their own brain if they were to develop a consistent habit of prayer and worship. It starts with us, we're the village. And it's up to us to champion and steward our young people in this critical exchange zone. So church, what are you doing to put the baton of faith into the hands of a young person? What could you do better? And today I'd love to pray for you. So if everybody could just stand to their feet. And I'm praying for all of us because whether or not you realize it, you're a part of this village. And God has entrusted us with hundreds of young people to look after. And it's up to us to steward them and shepherd them well. So if you're committed to this and you're willing to step up and understand them, would you just lift your hands as I pray? God, I just thank you so much for all of the young people that you've entrusted into our care. And God, I pray that you would give us the wisdom, the grace, the patience and understanding that we need to come alongside these young people in this critical exchange zone. God, I pray that we would be able to guide them and shape them in the right way to go so that their brains could actually be hardwired for a lifetime of faith. God, we thank you for everything you are. And we ask that you would bless us along this journey as we look after our little ones. In Jesus' name, amen.